We're in 1 Kings chapter 17. Last week we met the prophet Elijah. We met the wicked king Ahab to whom Elijah delivered a stern warning. And that warning was, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Elijah turned and went to a place by the brook Cherith where he would hide and where God would provide. And the ravens brought him two meals a day. The brook brought him water to drink. But lest the prophet be comfortable and grow complacent, God dried up the brook and he moved Elijah. And there was more work for Elijah to do as we now begin the new part of our study in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 8. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying. Now, before we see what it's saying, let's look at this phrase, and the word of the Lord came unto him. Elijah moved as the word of the Lord moved him. This is a good, solid principle by which to abide. Elijah did not have a complete written Bible, but he still had the word of the Lord, didn't he? As Elijah waited on the word of the Lord to make a move, so should we. Now, God is not going to, although he can do anything he wants, he is probably not going to give you some audible command or a vision Because all that we need is found in his word. How is it then that we can wait on the Lord before we move as Elijah did? Well, in considering what it says about what we believe, that is the Bible, how do we form our opinions about things such as stealing and murder and lying and marriage, and so on. Waiting on the Lord doesn't mean just sitting around hoping God will tell you what to do. Again, he's given us his word. Those principles, those precepts are in his word already. When you search the scriptures, you're waiting on the Lord. That's what you're doing. When you wait on the Lord... The prophet Isaiah said, your strength will be renewed. So waiting on the Lord is not a passive process per se. It's an active process, and that is seeking what God would have me to do. Sometimes that means standing still. Sometimes that means moving from the brook Cherith to another place where Elijah was sent. And we'll read about in verse 9. So here's what the word of the Lord said to Isaiah in verse 9. Arise. Get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Zarephath was apparently a Canaanite city. In the book of Obadiah, verse 20, it's just one chapter, it says, And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath. 
Now, Zidon, which you'll also see spelled with the letter S, Sidon, it's the same place. Sidon was the firstborn son of Canaan, who was Noah's grandson. You remember you had Noah and Ham and Canaan. And the Zidonians came from that line, from the line of Ham through Canaan. And that son, Ham, was the one who saw his drunken father's nakedness and about whom it was said, Cursed be Canaan. So we can conclude here, and based on what the Bible says about these towns, that God told Elijah to go to a Gentile town, not to the children of Israel, in order to be sustained. Now we should also note that God did not send Elijah to the king of Zidon or to the noblemen or the rich families of Zidon, but to a widow woman to be sustained. Do you see a pattern here? The world might say, why, if Elijah wants protection, he should go to his own people, to his own kin. He should go somewhere where the people have a lot of possessions, some extra food they could give him to be protected and to be sustained. Instead, God sent Elijah to the desert to be fed by an unclean bird. If you look in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 15, it says the raven is an unclean bird, just like the kite and the vulture and others that are listed there. He sent Elijah to a desert, not to a a place where there was an abundance of food. He fed him twice a day with ravens, or the ravens brought the food. They were kind of the Uber Eats for him in that day. And he didn't drink from these fancy clay water pots, but straight from a brook. And then God sent him to a Gentile widow to be housed and to be fed. God works differently than we do, doesn't he? And we're going to see, hopefully, his great purpose in that in just a moment. By himself in the wilderness, Elijah may well have starved to death. By going to a foreign Gentile nation such as Sidon, he may well have been killed. And by seeking to be sustained, or what we would call sustenance, that's the, verb, the, the noun for the verb sustain, by seeking sustenance from a widow, Elijah may have found himself doing with very little or even without. And he certainly would have been ridiculed by those who saw him begging bread from a widow, taking advantage of this woman in her poverty. But with God, all these things were used to bring glory to God, sustenance to Elijah, and as we shall see, increase to the widow. And only God can work that way. You look in your verse, there in verse 9, it says... At the end of the verse, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So before Elijah ever received instructions from God to go to Zarephath, God had already given this command to this widow. He hadn't, Elijah hadn't seen the widow and the widow hadn't seen him, but they'd both been with God. 
And God saw them both. And in case you ever wondered whether God used Gentiles to accomplish great things in the Old Testament especially, even when they were, as a whole, strangers to him, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, without God and having no hope in the world, yes, he did use them. While teaching in the synagogues, Jesus said, To the unbelieving Jews, this is found in Luke chapter 4, verses 24 through 28, if you're taking notes. Luke chapter 4, verses 24 through 28. Think of Elijah as you think about what Jesus is is saying here. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Now where was Elijah? He was in his own country and he was telling Ahab, God's going to dry this place up. No dew, no rain until I say so. Jesus said, no prophet is accepted in his own country, but I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias. Now that's Elijah. That's the way it's transliterated in the, in the New Testament. When heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land, but unto none of them, that is unto none of the widows, was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, that's Zarephath, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elishas the prophet, that's Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Do you see how the world takes it when God does things Differently than we do when he says, I'm going to use a Gentile to glorify myself. I'm going to use a widow woman to feed a man to sustain him. The fact that Jesus told this very story tells us he was glorified as God used Gentiles such as this widow and such as Naaman the Syrian, whose story we will read about in a few months, to bring glory to himself. And look back in the text at this phrase, to sustain thee, in chapter 9, or excuse me, chapter 17 of 1 Kings there in verse 9, to sustain thee. That's what God commanded this widow woman to do. What does this mean? Sustain, the most common translation is the word contain, as in a gallon container holds only a gallon of water, so it contains that gallon of water. The first translation of the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, the word that is translated as sustain, is the word nourish. That's the first time it's translated in the Old Testament into an English word, nourish. It's found in Genesis chapter 45 verses 10 through 11, Genesis 45 verses 10 through 11. And thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, And thou shalt be near unto me. Now this is Joseph telling his father. Thou and thy children and thy children's children and thy flocks and thy herds and all that thou hast. And there will I nourish thee or sustain thee. For there are yet five years of famine lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. This was Joseph's promise to his kinfolks. Because God had placed him in a position to be able to nourish them. Now what was Joseph when he arrived on the scene 
in, in Egypt. He was a slave, wasn't he? He wasn't able to nourish anybody. But because of God's providence, he put himself, he put Joseph in the position to be able to do this very thing, just like he was going to do with this widow. She wasn't able to sustain anybody, as we'll read in a moment. She couldn't even take care of herself and her son after this one day that we'll read about. But God could take care of everyone through her and take care of her as well. In the case of the words sustain or contain or nourish, there's no indication that this ever means that a person will become rich because they are nourished, that they will become rich, and I mean in the eyes of the world, because they are sustained. But as the Genesis 45 text shows, neither will those who are nourished come to poverty. If you're nourished, you're not poor. That's the bottom line. In our country, we have the most spoiled brat, self-entitled people on the face of the earth. And yeah, sometimes it's us, isn't it? But we do. And what is considered poverty here in the United States, in all 57 states, as Barack Obama would say, uh, I just can't let that one go, I'm sorry, is uh, what we have, what we call poverty or what some call poverty here is called abundance in other countries. And the Apostle Paul captured this truth in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. That's 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 8. He said, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And you can underline those two words, great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, raiment is what I'm wearing, clothing, let us therewith be content. Notice that. Paul said if the godly have food and clothing, they have great gain. Yet many who receive taxpayer money, yours and mine, month after month, year after year, they have televisions and iPhones and all kinds of free stuff. Many of them are able to work, physically able to work, but they choose to enjoy life at our expense. And when their behavior is criticized, do you know what the critics say? They say you're making fun of the poor. You're taking advantage of the poor. You have no compassion for people in poverty. Listen, poverty, and we're going by what the Bible says about it, not my opinion, Poverty is what you have when you cannot afford to eat. When you have not one stitch of clothing to wear. And most people in our country are nowhere near poor. But the widow in our text surely was. As we shall see. And yet, she was commanded by the Lord to sustain Elijah. Can you imagine the response if a man walked up to the house of one of our so-called poor. I'm not talking about the truly poor. But one of them who's scrolling on the iPhone while watching that big plasma TV and living in free housing and eating the free food that the taxpayers had bought them. And if a man such as Elijah walked up to one of those houses and said, can you sustain me? Can you spare me one meal? He'd probably get a pretty negative reception, wouldn't he? Verse 10, so 
he arose and went to Zarephath. Again, we see Elijah waiting on the word of the Lord before he moves. That's a great principle. And then the rest of the verse there, it says, And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks, and he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. It says, When he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. Notice what she was doing. She was at the gate gathering sticks. She was a poor widow woman, but she had the physical ability to go to work, pick up sticks, and make a fire so her meal could be cooked. She didn't sit at home waiting on someone else to pick up sticks for her because she was able. She didn't blame the rich because she was poor. She just went to work. And there is nobody more deserving of pity than a widow woman who has no one to take care of her. And while we're on this subject, as it appears in our text, and this is how we approach topics in this church. When they come up in the text, we address them, and then we move to the next verse. And that's that's better than the so-called topical preaching, because this comes right out of the text in our verse-by-verse study. So let's just either look at it, maybe for your first time, or remind you of it. If you've been here very long, we've certainly talked about this. Let's be reminded of the doctrine of how we're supposed to care for widows. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. That's 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, if you'll just write that down. And it says, Paul wrote, Honor widows that are widows indeed. But if any widow have children or nephews, let them first, that's the children and the nephews, Let them learn first to show piety at home. That means goodness toward the widow. And to requite their parents. For that is good and acceptable before God. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate. That means she has nothing and nobody. Trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. From this text in 1 Timothy, we learn that a widow who has nephews, able-bodied children, obviously old enough to work and earn money, should that widow should be supported by her own family. But as this widow, those widows who have nobody to care for them and don't have any resources have to trust God completely. This woman had a son, as we will read in a moment, but he obviously was not able to take care of his mother, and she was able to take care of him and herself up to a point. And although God took care of this widow, we're going to see that she still took care of herself and her son. Part of God taking care of you is you using the ability God gave you to take care of yourself. You ever thought of that? That's a pretty simple principle, isn't it? God gave me, uh, and I praise him every time I hear somebody get sick of anything. I don't care whether it's uh, cancer, COVID, the flu, a stomach bug. God has given me a wonderful immune system, and I appreciate it. But you know what I don't do? I I don't think, well, I'm not going to get sick and go start 
putting my hands on door handles and wiping my nose and eating after other people and dipping my hand in the candy corn jar after someone else. I'm not doing that. I'm going to take my vitamins and my supplements and wash my hands, and I'm going to do all of that all the while thanking God. So God has protected me, but he's also given me the ability to care for myself. So there's your principle in action with this widow as well. We have had widows in our church who had children who could take care of them. We've had widows who had nobody to take care of them. Our widow's needs, as far as I can tell, by the grace of God, have always been met. I I don't believe we've ever had a widow who has starved to death who was a member of this church or even who came to this church and whose needs we knew about. And thank God that he takes care of widows. And he tells us how it's supposed to be done. Both of my grandmothers were widows. And their dead husbands left something for them to live on it wasn't much because they didn't have much but both of my grandmothers had children and grandchildren who were able to take care of their needs if their income wouldn't meet that need we were able to do things for them physically if they were not able to do them for themselves and so we did and at no time did either of my grandmothers ever go to their churches and say, I need help. That would have been a shame to my family on both sides to have ever put them in a position to have to go ask for help from the church because we disregarded what God's Word says about the matter. But at the same time, both of them participated in their own care without needing much help until they were uh, too sick, too ill to be able to do so. And then we did what we could for them up until they died. The people in our country need to hit the reset button on what poverty is and what the responsibilities are when it comes to uh, taking care of widows or any other group for that matter. Our text says about Elijah in verse 10, and he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water and a vessel that I may drink. Once again, from a worldly perspective, this is unconscionable for a perfectly healthy prophet to ask a working widow woman to get him a drink of water. Now, just picture that image in your head and picture what the the worldly perspective is. But the spiritual perspective, which we're going to learn much about here, I hope, from a spiritual perspective, with all the context we have and all the context we're about to have, This request from Elijah was perfectly reasonable, even biblical. Number one, remember God had already told Elijah that he commanded this widow woman in Zarephath to sustain him. Now, where does that put all the pressure for this to happen? Puts it on God, doesn't it? And that's where we want it. God, number two, God had already provided for Elijah in a desert or in a wilderness by using ravens and a brook. If God could use an unclean bird to do diner dash duty for Elijah twice a day, then he could use an unclean Gentile woman, a widow at that, to do the same and even more. And number three, this request was reasonable. Because it would be a test question to determine if Elijah was addressing the right widow. What did Jesus say about the widows? There were many of them. 
There were many widows, but there was only one widow to whom Elijah was sent, and that was the one God selected. That was the one whom God ordained and commanded to sustain Elijah. But the, the test was, whenever Elijah approached this widow, would she sustain him or would she tell him to get out of there? After all, the many widows, probably most of whom had to pick up sticks for themselves, what would they say if Elijah came up and said, hey, can you take a break from your work and go get me some water? Most of them probably would have said, I'm busy picking up sticks. Or if it would have happened in Texas, they'd say, your arms ain't broke, get it yourself. I know y'all are spiritual and have never said anything like that unkindly to someone. But this widow would pass the test. That's why it was reasonable for Elijah to ask her to fetch him some water and even more, as we'll read in a moment. In Genesis chapter 24, there was a time when God did a similar thing. Abraham's, Abraham's eldest servant was charged by Abraham to go to a certain land, to Mesopotamia, to Nahor, where his family was from. And to find Isaac a wife, but not a Canaanite. So don't you bring back a Canaanite. And when that servant arrived in Nahor in Mesopotamia, that servant must have seen many, many beautiful women. But he asked God to show him which woman would be Isaac's wife. Lord, give me a sign. Show me which one it's going to be. And that servant waited on the Lord, didn't he? And here's what that servant prayed in that in verses 13 through 14 there in Genesis. I don't know if I gave you the chapter or not. 24, yeah. So it's, it'd be Genesis 24, 13 through 14 if you're writing it down. That servant prayed to God, Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. So that shows you there were daughters of men. Must have been many. We don't know how many. And let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, Let down thy pitcher, I pray thee that I may drink. See, he was also going to ask someone for a drink of water. And she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac, and thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. He went to a bunch of, to a foreign land, and there were women out there, the daughters of men who come to the well. And rather than picking one of them and saying, oh, well, she's a fair-looking lady, I'll get her to come with me and marry Isaac. He said, Lord, you're going to have to show me which one it is. And God did it the same way he did when Elijah was sent to this widow woman. The test question was, would you give me a drink of water? Now, you know that woman was busy. If she was at the well, she was drawing water for her family, for her master, for her horses and cattle and so forth. And yet that was the sign. And, of course, in, those, in the verses that followed in that chapter, it was Rebecca who did exactly what that servant prayed would be done. Why? Why did Rebecca do that? Why did Rebecca not tell that eldest servant of Abraham, hey, beat it? 
fellow, I don't even know who you are. Because God also commanded her concerning this thing. And although we don't read what specific words God may have said to her, we know that his spirit moved upon her to obey such an unusual request. And the servant was therefore led to select the right wife for Isaac. Now back in our text in 1 Kings chapter 17, boy, Brother Rick, the sound is awesome this morning. I sure appreciate it. Verse 17, and now we're going to look at verse 11. 1 Kings 17, 11. And as she was going to fetch it, that is the water, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in my hand. Boy, if that don't beat all. <laughs> the, the ones who may have stood by and said, Can you believe he just asked that widow woman to get him some water? Ha, now he wants her to bring him some bread. How about a mint on your pillow, sir? Would that be okay as well? But that's not the way God sees it. You see what this woman was doing when she went to get the water. She was beginning to obey that which was commanded before by the Lord himself. He, what did he tell her? He said, you're going to sustain Elijah. You're going to give him sustenance. And water is part of that. So as she begins to obey the command to go and get sustenance, and Elijah sees that, he sees evidence that she is obeying God's command and his request. And so he tests her obedience. He wants to complete the equation here. And he says, by the way, would you get me a morsel of bread? And had she stopped and said, now that's ridiculous. Come on, can't you see my hands are full? Why don't you go get it yourself? Giving him food and bread was the same ministry the raven and the brook had performed before. Now watch how this unfolds because this is beautiful. Verse 12. And she said, as the Lord God, thy God liveth, I have not a cake. That's a cake of bread. But a handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son that we may eat it. And die. That doesn't mean she was going to get food poisoning. It means that was her last meal, literally. And I'll tell you about her character. She was willing to die rather than to put someone else out. But she was trusting in God, as, we, as we're going to see. And although Elijah knew this woman was a widow, he may not have known exactly how destitute she was. However, rather than asking her if she had enough left over or if she had enough to make him something to eat, he showed great faith in God. Now, the world wouldn't see it this way, but he showed great faith in God. That is, if God commanded the widow to sustain him, then Elijah already knew that the widow would have enough to sustain him. How is that? Because God gave the command, sustain him. If God gives the command, he's going to give the provision for the command to be fulfilled. And she said that we may eat it and die. She and her son were down to their last meal. So they would die afterward of starvation. That's what this means. And not only did this circumstance not change Elijah's request, but it even emboldened him further. Verse 13, and Elijah said unto her, fear not, 
Go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. Now let's look at fear not. Don't miss this. The first thing that was necessary for this woman wasn't more meal to make the food for this extra mouth. It wasn't that she needed more oil or even more time. What she needed was less fear. Because he said first, fear not. And if she had less fear, that meant more faith. Many times in the Old Testament, God comforted his people by saying, fear not. And that was often followed by, for I am with thee, or I will go before thee. In the New Testament, Jesus said to his disciples, fear not, as he taught them and as he comforted them. And Elijah tells this widow, fear not, because she was afraid she and her son were about to die. And that this prophet wanted her last meal to be his. And it may appear to you that the woman was in doubt of God's command. Perhaps she may have thought, I I want to obey the Lord. But does he really understand how little I have? And the answer is yes, he does. He knows exactly who you are and what you have and what you need. So when people read a command in God's word and they may be hesitant to to obey it. It may be that they are wondering if God really understands what they're going going through. An example, one of the most common objections I've heard in my ministry is, and it's to tithing, and that is a lack of income. Someone will say, I don't make much. Remember, God commanded his people to give a tithe, not an amount. Now, there were a couple places where he commanded an amount, but it was very little. But it was to give a tithe, not an amount, but a percent. So if you have little, then you'll give little. And if you have much, then you'll give much. You'll give much more. And by the way, if Congress ever wanted to do anything right, they would use God's principles to levy income taxes on taxpayers. And I think Herman Cain was the only candidate who ever seriously put that forth in prior presidential campaigns. But we would levy income taxes on taxpayers, and everyone, therefore, would be a taxpayer. Now, what would the world say about that? Well, that's cruel. How could you, how could you tax the little old granny who's barely getting by on Social Security? But if you made little, your taxes would be little. If you made more, your taxes would be more. But the percent would be the same for everyone. And the progressive income tax, which was a result of political greed and a way to control people, has been very successful in earning wealth, therefore power and control for those who are in positions of authority. They didn't use God's principles. And that's why we're reaping what we're reaping right now. One of the many reasons that we're reaping what we reap in this country. But in the matter of obeying God's command, as this widow was to do, the first thing I say to you is what Elijah said to her, fear not. You read a command in God's word and you say, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I, I know that you wouldn't have told me to do it if you didn't expect me to do it. So 
You do it. You fear not. Obeying God's command is not going to hurt you even if it costs you your life. And you could put that in the bank and gain interest on it. That is a solid, rock-solid truth. Obeying God's command is not going to hurt you even if it costs your life. Now go back to the text there in verse 13 in the middle. He said, but make me thereof a little cake first. Oh, what audacity, right? Why would, what man would say that to a dying widow who was down to her last handful of meal? From the worldly perspective, it again makes no sense. But from a heavenly perspective, it's perfectly rational. And let's examine this request for just a moment. Notice three things. Number one, God commanded the widow to sustain Elijah, but the widow didn't have enough. Therefore, when, he, when God commanded the widow to sustain Elijah, he obligated himself to provide enough for the widow to sustain Elijah. If he hadn't, then she could not obey his command to sustain Elijah. And she couldn't obey it on her own anyway. She had to obey it as God provided. Number two, by eating from the widow's hand, Elijah was not going to eat all she had. That was her fear, wasn't it? She already said, I'm going to go in and cook this last meal, and then my son and I are going to die. That's all we have. And here comes this brave soul, Elijah, and he says, hey, before you make that last meal, make me something first. But the truth of it is, even though Elijah ate first, ate from her hand, he wasn't going to eat all she had. He couldn't. There would have to be enough to not only feed the widow and probably her son, and it did feed her son, but we'll, we'll get to that. Because if there wasn't enough to continually feed this widow, how could she stay alive to sustain Elijah? That was the command she was given. She wasn't given a command to just give him a biscuit and say, hey, buddy, you're going to have to go down the road and find someone more food. God says sustain him. What did God do with Elijah out in the wilderness? He sustained him. He didn't just drop one meal and say, hey, you're on your own now. You know, your coupon's used up. He kept feeding him and kept giving him drink until he dried up the brook and then sent him to Zarephath. See how this is coming together? And thirdly, Elijah's faith in God's plan was so strong that he knew that whatever the widow made for him would not keep her and her son from also eating. In fact, their portion would be enough to at least keep them from dying after that meal. And we know these things already without having to read ahead, but let's go on. Verse 14, for thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. It says, for thus saith the Lord. Okay, that phrase right there is the predicate. It's the foundation on which Elijah gave the order to this widow back in the previous verse. He told her, make me a cake first, and then you make something for your son and you. And when he made that command or that gave that order, Elijah wasn't being brash or presumptive because of his own confidence. He gave that order because he was confident in the Lord. 
he was confident that God would do what he said. And it says there in verse 14, the barrel of meal shall not waste. The word waste is translated 57 times in the Old Testament as the word consumed, 20 times as the word finished. Its first use was found in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1. Genesis 2 verse 1 where it's used, where it's the word finished. And it said, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. So the barrel of meal will not be finished. It will not be consumed until the day the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And then it said, neither shall the cruise of oil fail. And that word fail is decreased or lack in other places. Just like the barrel of meal, the cruise of oil will never run out. I think we have time to to do this. Let's step back in time from this event and go to the tabernacle in the wilderness, particularly to where the scriptures teach us about the bread and the oil in the tabernacle. Exodus 25.30, Exodus 25.30, here's the command concerning the showbread. And thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me always. You see that? Always. Now, we've learned this before when we studied Exodus. So it shall never fail that the showbread would be on that table. And then Exodus 27, 20, Exodus 27, 20 is about the oil. And thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring thee pure oil olive beaten for the light to cause the lamp to burn always. That is, it shall never fail that the oil olive would be in the lamp causing it to burn without being finished, without being consumed, always. And who is represented in this always present showbread and in this oil in the never-failing light of the burning lamp? It's Jesus Christ. John six thirty-five, and Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. This widow would never hunger because there would always be meal in her barrel, thus bread on her table. And then Hebrews 1, 9, speaking of Jesus Christ, says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. That oil represents the Holy Spirit, also called the Spirit of Christ, there in Romans 8 and 1 Peter chapter 1. And perhaps you wonder... How does that never-ending cruise of oil and never-failing oil in the tabernacle lamp have anything to do with the Spirit of Christ? And your answer is found in Hebrews 9.14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, eternal, offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you see the lesson God is teaching Elijah and the widow and perhaps her son, definitely us? With the never-ending, never-consumed barrel of meal and the never-finished oil in her cruise? The lesson for some will be very shallow. They'll say, well, the prosperity gospel is alive and well. All you have to do is ask God for food and oil and he'll, he'll keep your cup running over. And then that's it. But the real lesson is that Jesus, the bread of life and his spirit, the eternal oil of gladness, are found through faith in God. Faith in the record he gave of his son. In him, not the barrel of meal, we have life. In him, not the cruise of oil, we shall live forever. 
in Christ by his spirit. The meal and the oil and the barrel and the cruise will one day burn up. But those eternal truths which we glean from this passage will not. And we're done. Praise God. Any questions or comments about the lesson? All right, well, let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for those who came, thankful for those who watched online. And, Lord, we lift up the many sick of our number who were unable to be here. Pray your hand upon them as you heal them and bring them back into your service. And, Lord, we pray as we go into the next hour that the word of God will be high and lifted up and our hearts will be pointed heavenward. The cares of this world would disappear from our thoughts in favor of what we should learn here today. And, Lord, may we leave this place edified as the body of Christ and ready to evangelize sinners to be good fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and workers, friends, and even strangers in the, in the marketplaces and in the streets, that our light would not be hid under a bushel, but would be set up on a hill for all to see what Jesus is doing through us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.